From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, a devastating earthquake in Morocco. We have the latest. Ron Elving on the Weekend Politics. And the strike of actors and writers has halted film production, which leaves those who make movies move. Technicians, camera, sound crew, set designers, and more out of work. We've run through our savings at this point, and we're all trying to figure out how we're all going to stay afloat, hoping that this is going to end soon. And later pilots that airlift pets from overcrowded animal shelters to those that can make room to save their lives. Joe Poznanski's new book breaks the beauty of baseball into moments. Like B.J. Lederman, who does our theme music playing the national anthem. First, our newscast. It's Saturday, September 9, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. A staggering death toll is growing in Morocco. More than 800 people are known to have died from a powerful earthquake that struck last night. The epicenter is in the Atlas Mountains, remote areas rescuers are struggling to reach, where families are reportedly still trapped in collapsed homes. Some 45 miles away in Marrakesh, hospitals are asking for blood donations as the injured pour in. The quake has damaged ancient buildings in the historic city. Abdul Wafi Lafti is Morocco's interior minister and is heard here through a BBC interpreter. The armed forces, local authorities, security services and civil protection in all the affected regions continue to mobilize and harness all means and capabilities to provide the necessary assistance and evaluate the damage. President Biden has released a statement saying the U.S. is working to ensure the safety of U.S. citizens in Morocco. Biden is in India today trying to make clear that the U.S. is still invested in the G20, despite key leaders from China and Russia staying away. NPR's Asma Khalid has more from New Delhi. Aides to Biden say he's using the G20 meetings to show the U.S. is invested in emerging economies. The president will be focusing, in part, on global infrastructure and investment. And Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer says that includes plans to roll out a shipping and rail corridor that connects India and the Middle East to Europe. It will be a clear demonstration of a new model President Biden has pioneered for more uh, transparent and sustainably uh, and sustainable development sustainable high-standard infrastructure uh, that fills a damaging global gap. The White House says this corridor would be key for enabling the flow of commerce, energy and data. Asma Khalid, NPR News, New Delhi. The United Auto Workers and the big three Detroit automakers remain far apart on contract talks, with less than a week remaining before the union says it will go on strike. UAW President Sean Fain laid out the differences between what the union has asked for and what Ford, GM, and Stellantis, formerly known as Chrysler, have offered. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports. Fain was wearing a button that said, I don't want to strike, but I will. He sat in front of a trash can prominently labeled Big Three Proposals and called offers of 10% raises insulting, citing CEO pay that's up some 40%. The union also wants a cost-of-living adjustment, or COLA, tied to inflation. Fain says Ford offered one that could be zero for years. That's not COLA. That's not even Diet COLA. That's Coke Zero. Still, Fain noted its progress that an automaker is offering COLA at all. Tiers are another sticking point. That is the difference in pay between new and longtime workers. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. It's NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Parts of northern Massachusetts are cleaning up after a storm yesterday knocked out power and downed trees. Andover and Lawrence were hit hard. About 77 percent of Andover residents are still without power. And Lawrence has set up a command center to provide water, electricity and air conditioning to residents. The storms also are affecting public transit. On the commuter rail, Haverhill trains will start and end at Ballardville today because of cleanup from the storms. A federal grand jury in Boston has indicted four men from New Hampshire in connection with a campaign of intimidation and harassment of two journalists employed by New Hampshire Public Radio. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the charges follow a year-long investigation. The attacks began last April when vandals targeted the homes of journalist Lauren Chuljan of NHPR, her parents, and her editor. Chuljan reported on allegations of sexual misconduct against Eric Spofford, who built addiction treatment centers across New Hampshire. Spofford tried to get NHPR to retract the story, but has denied any connection to the vandalism. Federal prosecutors say Eric Labarge, who was arrested Friday morning, was a close personal associate of Spofford. Three other men were arrested and charged this past June and remain in custody. Prosecutors allege that the four men were responsible for the attacks intended to harass and intimidate NHPR journalists. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Plain Ridge Park Casino's Sportsbook is opening today. The 200-seat restaurant and bet-taking enterprise will be open to the public at 9 a.m. Patriots Hall of Fame linebacker Teddy Bruschi will cut a ceremonial ribbon at 10 a.m. The facility will be open tomorrow for the first Patriots game day since legal sports betting launched in Massachusetts. At Fenway Park last night, the Red Sox lost to the Orioles 11-2. They play again this afternoon. The Revs are on the road against Minnesota tonight. It is 73 degrees in Boston with scattered showers and a chance of thunderstorms highs today in the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. A powerful earthquake has struck Morocco. Authorities there say that more than 800 people have been killed. They expect that number to rise. Hundreds of more people are wounded as rescuers scramble to try to save them from the rubble. NPR's Ruth Sherlock joins us from Rome. Uh, Ruth, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. What's the latest you hear from the region? Well, what we know is this earthquake hit in the night on Friday, and the epicenter is just over 40 miles south of the historic city of Marrakesh. There's video footage posted online from the earthquake region, and it shows people panicked running through the streets in the dark amid these clouds of dust as they're trying to find some kind of safety. This was a powerful earthquake, Scott, about 6.8 in magnitude, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, and it lasted several seconds. And then the agency said another earthquake of 4.9 magnitude hit about 19 minutes later. 
The epicenter is in the Atlas Mountains, and the problem with that is the damage spans at about across about five provinces to remote villages that are hard to reach. So emergency workers mm -hmm. have been trying to get through impassable roads in some places. Power is said to be down in several towns and villages. Rescuers have been working through the night, but the death toll has been rising quickly. Of course, Marrakesh is historic and storied. What, what do we know about the damage there? Well, you know, like you said, this is a historic region and Marrakesh itself dates back as a city back to the 11th century. So many of the buildings there are, you know, made of these stone blocks and traditional masonry and they're not necessarily built to withstand earthquakes. In Marrakesh itself, we know that the Qutubiyya Mosque, which dates back to about the 12th century, has apparently suffered some damage. There's video of the 69 meter high minaret of the mosque shaking and dust billowing from the top. And there's also videos showing damage to parts of the famous red walls that surround the old city, which is a UNESCO heritage site. Look, we don't know the full extent of the damage. Um, we won't know for some time. It does seem, though, that, you know, initially much of the historical part of the city has been spared. There's lots of tourists that visit the city from around the world. And, you know, we're hearing reports of some of these tourists lining up at hospitals alongside Moroccans yeah. offering to donate blood. Ruth, what do we know about the rescue effort? Well, you know, like I mentioned, a big part of the problem here is that a lot of the damage is in these remote areas so a lot of the work right now is about clearing roads for ambulances to even be able to pass to even be able to get to these areas as some of the roads are said to be you know covered in rubble um, the government is sending aid also there's um, trucks filled with blankets food camp cots and other help snaking up through the mountains President Joe Biden is among several world leaders that's offered to send help, um, as have France, France and Germany and lots of other countries. But the Moroccan government needs to formally request that help before outside rescue crews can come in. And there's Ruth Sherlock on duty for us in Rome. Ruth, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Scott. President Biden is in India this weekend for a summit featuring leaders of 19 countries and the European Union. Almost two notable absences are going to be Vladimir Putin of Russia and Xi Jinping of China. NPR's Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Uh, Indian Prime Minister Modi is the actual leader of G20 uh, because of the group's system of rotating chairmanship. Does President Biden have an opportunity at this summit to reassert American leadership on a range of issues? Yes, but an opportunity wrapped in a complex set of challenges. Modi wants to appear close to the U.S. and has played up his relationship with Biden this week, much as he did his relationship with former President Trump. The U.S. wants to build relationships with India and other important states around China, including South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, and even Vietnam, which Biden will visit on this trip. What about the president's own leadership profile uh, on a week in which we saw more polls saying that his leadership is reflected at least in public approval ratings is not rated highly as we enter an election season. These polls tell us Biden's facing headwinds with the voters. It has to do with higher prices, especially for gasoline, housing, certain foods. That's frustrating for the Biden people because most economists now believe the economy can return to low levels of inflation without the recession widely predicted just a few months ago. 
If that's true, it's quite a feat. Yet a sizable majority of Americans tell pollsters that Biden's policies have made the economy worse. And that's more than a messaging problem. It's a reflection of deep partisanship. Certainly, Republicans are united against him, but also of a sense the average American has that too many things cost too much more than they did just a short while ago. A gasoline, first and foremost, and certain foods, uh, eggs primarily, a uh, 40% increase in the cost of eggs. And the cost of buying a home has greatly increased due to higher interest rates, but also to the historically short supply of homes on the market. People don't live in the macro economy, Scott. They live in their own household economies. And right now, that's his biggest problem, along, of course, with Ukraine and relations with China and Russia. And speaking of Russia, what kind of friend does Moscow have in Elon Musk? Uh, Musk is the kind of friend uh, who is primarily a friend to his own interests. Uh, this week, it was revealed in a new book that Musk has refused to make his Starlink technology available to Ukraine at a crucial moment in the fighting last year, taking sides, as it were. Uh, that made it impossible for the Ukrainian drones to operate and allowed Russian warships to sit in a Black Sea harbor and fire missiles into Ukraine. And that incident has not been forgotten. The election interference case out of Georgia. Uh, we and many others, of course, have referred to it as sprawling uh, because the district attorney there brought charges against 19 people, uh, including, of course, former President Trump. We have uh, learned this week that it could have been even more sprawling. Yes, what is the next level beyond sprawling? Uh, this report shows the special grand jury that investigated the 2020 election aftermath in Georgia had originally recommended charges not just for the 19 who have been charged, but against 20 others as well, 39 defendants in all, including three senators, Republican Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and two former senators who were Republicans from Georgia. Uh, they were not charged. Also charged was National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and a long list of Trump operatives, excuse me, also not charged was National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and a long list of Trump operatives and Georgia State Republican figures. So the Trump camp has suggested that the prosecutors in Georgia were out of control. This report suggests quite the opposite. They were weighing the evidence against each defendant very carefully and trying to charge only the clearest, strongest cases. And so we're going to confront an election season in which we, uh, we have any number of trials going on, aren't we? Yes, we are. There are going to be trials in Georgia, in Washington, D.C., in Florida, perhaps also in New York. And we have never had a situation such as this before. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. The Worthington Christian winning team mascot defeated the Westerville North losing team mascot 2-1 in an Ohio boys soccer game on Saturday. It's according to a story that ran last month in the Columbus Dispatch. Go winning team mascots! That scintillating lead was written not by a sports writer, but an artificial intelligence tool. Gannett Newspapers, which owns the Dispatch, says it has since paused its use of AI to write about high school sports. A Gannett spokesperson said, We are experimenting with automation and AI to build tools for our journalists and add content for our readers. Many news organizations, including divisions of NPR, are examining how AI might be used in their work. But if Gannett has begun their AI experimenting with high school sports because they believe they are less momentous than war, peace, climate change, the economy, Beyonce, and politics, 
They may miss something crucial. Nothing may be more important to the students who play high school soccer, basketball, football, volleyball, and baseball, and to their families, neighborhoods, and sometimes whole towns. That next game is what the students train for, work towards, and dream about. Someday almost all student-athletes will go on to have jobs in front of screens, in office parks, at schools, hospitals, or construction sites. They'll have mortgages and children, suffer breakups and health scares. But the high school games they played and watched, their hopes and cheers, will stay vibrant in their memories. I have a small idea. If newspapers will no longer send staff reporters to cover high school games, why not hire high school student journalists? News organizations can pay students an hourly wage to cover high school games. The young reporters might learn how to be fair to all sides, write vividly, and engage readers. That's what the lyrical sports columns of Red Barber, Wendell Smith, Frank DeFord, and Sally Jenkins did and do. And think of the great writers who've been inspired by sports. Hemingway on fishing, Bernard Malibu and Marianne Moore on baseball, Joyce Carol Oates on boxing, George Plimpton on almost all sports, and C.L.R. James, the West Indian historian who once wrote of cricket, there can be raw pain and bleeding. For so many thousands see the inevitable ups and downs of only a game. A good high school writer, unlike a bot, could tell readers not just the score, but the stories of the game. And you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR on this Saturday morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818, and coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll get the story on Amelia Air, a nonprofit that helps fly animals from overcrowded shelters to areas of the country where the animals have a better chance of getting adopted. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition. It's 74 degrees in Boston, scattered showers today, a chance of thunderstorms and highs in the mid-80s. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales University. Prepare for an immersive approach to education, from research and internships to cutting-edge labs, students explore their passions and discover new ones. And New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. Enchanting landscapes and magical new fall experiences await. Less than an hour from Boston. NEBG.org. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. A powerful earthquake last night, rare in Morocco, has left more than 800 people dead. As rescue workers try to reach the epicenter in a mountainous area some 45 miles outside of Marrakesh, a historic city also damaged by the quake. The African Union is being granted permanent member status in the group of 20 top world economies. Summit host Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced the move today, part of his drive to give a greater voice to the global south. 
Excessive heat warnings blanket Southern California and Arizona. Today's forecast in the Phoenix area calls for dangerously hot conditions up to 114 degrees. Set to break a record there, 54 days of 110-plus degree temperatures in a single year. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from PBS with The Bussing Battleground. American Experience tells the story of the bitter struggle to integrate Boston schools after a court mandate, premiering Monday at 9, 8 central on PBS. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Former President Trump made a campaign stop in South Dakota last night. It is the third time he's visited the state, his first rally since his fourth indictment. I am being indicted for you. I'm not too thrilled about that, but that's part of the job description, isn't it? I'm being indicted for you. Lee Strubinger from member station South Dakota Public Broadcasting was there and joins us now from Rapid City. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, you bet, Scott. And and why did Mr. Trump come to South Dakota? Yeah, with Trump facing numerous felony charges, he came to South Dakota, where his support is strong. Uh, he attended a state Republican fundraiser, and in return, Trump was able to secure a key endorsement from Republican Governor Kristi Noem. Uh, here she is introducing the former president last night. He is a man of significance. He is the leader the fighter that our country needs. He has my full and complete endorsement for President of the United States of America. So this should come as no surprise to those who follow Noam closely, Um, but there has been speculation the second term Republican governor might run for president, but in the last few months she's taken a saying there's no path to winning the nomination with Trump in the race. And more recent speculation, however, that uh, she could join Donald Trump as a running mate. Help us understand what she might bring to a ticket. Yeah, Noam has been a strong supporter of Trump and and loyal for years. Uh, She's able to paint a narrative of South Dakota being a red state success story because of Trump. Uh, Noam is a rising politician. She'll appear regularly on Fox News to talk about national issues and push back against Biden administration policies. And she often ties in that national narrative to how she says it affects South Dakota. Noam started gaining national attention for her handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. She likes to bring that up a lot. And during the rally, there even appeared to be efforts to plant the idea of Noam as a running mate in Trump's mind. When Noam was giving her speech, signs were passed around with both their names on it. And when Trump walked out on stage, a Trump Gnome 2024 sign flashed on the big screen in the arena. Um, but that you know, ticket wasn't really hard for attendees to imagine. You know, Throughout the speech, Trump projected what his second presidency might look like. And supporters here are even embracing the idea with his numerous legal challenges. His recent mugshot appeared on a wanted for president poster. And there were t-shirts uh, saying never surrender. Uh, Lee, what was the mood like at the rally? It felt like a typical Trump rally. Uh, he spent a lot of time talking about his accomplishments during his presidency. Uh, however, he did talk about what he called the fake and phony charges against him. 
He said they were ordered by current President Joe Biden. You know, we should note that there are four separate investigations being conducted by state and federal prosecutors. Uh, towards the end of Trump's speech, he issued a 10-minute lament under a bed of music that ranged from weaponizing the FBI, the Green New Deal, and electric-powered military tanks to airports that he described as a dirty, crowded mess. You sit and wait for hours and then are notified that the plane won't leave and they have no idea when they will, where their ticket prices have tripled, they don't have the pilots to fly the planes, they don't seek qualified air traffic controllers, and they just don't know what they're doing. Much of the speech mirrored things that we heard during his first presidential campaign, um, painting a picture of America in decline and that he alone can fix it. It really felt like he was workshopping this speech before he reaches bigger stages closer to the convention next year. Lee Strubinger from South Dakota Public Broadcasting, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, you bet. Climate solutions like solar panels and electric cars require lots of minerals, copper, lithium, manganese. The U.S. plans new mines for these metals across the West, but as NPR's Julia Simon reports, the country's need for these metals can sometimes collide with the region's lack of water. You do have a miner in there. <laughs> On a 107-degree morning in the mountains east of Phoenix, a miner in a hard hat peeps out of the top of an 11-foot-tall bucket. Tyson Nansell, spokesperson for the Resolution Copper Mine, says the miner's about to plunge. 6,800 feet underground. Where the copper lies. To process it, the mine will use water. A lot, says geologist James Wells, much of it from an area east of Phoenix. The equivalent of a brand new city of something like 140,000 people. That's how much water we're talking about. Earlier this summer, the Phoenix area restricted some new home construction because of groundwater supplies. The region's water supplies are under increasing stress from drought and climate change. Yet, it's in this same area where Resolution will use wells to suck up billions of gallons of water over the next 40 years. That's just a big, big new demand for water in a time that Arizona just doesn't have much water to spare. Resolution is one of many mining projects planned for the arid West, projects the U.S. hopes will ensure supplies of key minerals for the energy transition. Copper, lithium, and manganese are used in the batteries, electric vehicles, and renewable energy that will help the U.S. get off fossil fuels. But locals worry about the impact of these new Western mines on the region's scarce water supplies. Wensler Nosey Sr. is leader of San Carlos Apache Stronghold, a group that opposes resolution. When it comes to water, you know, water is life and, and, and nothing matters without water. Mining companies use water for processing the minerals, for dust control, and when working deep underground, they remove groundwater so it doesn't flood their mines. In the Patagonia Mountains, south of Tucson, environmental groups are concerned about the impacts of a new manganese and zinc mine. Local environmentalist Carolyn Schaefer says it's not just the volumes of water that the Hermosa project would use, but also the impacts on water quality. She's particularly concerned about mine water discharges in a creek that was already polluted by mining waste. It's going to also cause all these other contaminants to now be picked up and washed 
down creek. The Hermosa project says they've built a state-of-the-art water treatment plant, so their water discharges meet state standards and are reducing water in their mine waste. As for resolution, the mine's president, Victoria PC, says they'll be using stored Colorado River water as well as groundwater, and she says they too are minimizing water usage, especially in the copper processing. We've agreed to completely change the technology of some of the facilities to reduce the amount of water. But some Arizonans worry their mining sector isn't regulated enough when it comes to water. Tom Bushotsky is the director of the Arizona Department of Water Resources. He says the state's groundwater code does have some exemptions for the mining sector. Agriculture, industry, and construction companies have to prove that water wells they drill won't affect other water wells. Mining companies don't have to do that. The mining wells do not have to go through the well spacing requirement process. As for water usage, mining companies self-report their numbers. There's no government monitoring. He says his agency will check things out if something doesn't look right. We are a regulatory agency, but at the same time, the best way to ensure regulatory compliance is to have positive relationships with the water users. Experts say the West's mining-friendly regulations are the legacy of scrambles for minerals in the 1800s, like the gold rush. Wells, who consults for groups which oppose Resolution Mine, says they're out of date. There's not enough water to go around in Arizona. And, you know, everyone should be playing by the same rules. It's the era of climate change, he says. And when groundwater supplies go, it can take generations to get them back. Julia Simon, NPR News, Superior, Arizona. Support for this reporting was provided by Stanford University's Bill Lane Center for the American West. People with ADHD have had trouble getting medications to treat their condition for almost a year. Some people have resorted to rationing or going without. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha, why this problem with ADHD medications has gone on for so long, what might be done about it. You can listen live on your radio or tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. As the labor strikes in Hollywood roll on, we wanted to try to understand how the strikes affect other workers in Hollywood, not just writers and actors. We're joined now by Doug Dresser, a longtime location scout near Denver, Colorado. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having us, Scott. And Brian Mendoza, who's a boom operator in Los Angeles. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And I'd like to begin by helping us understand what is it you do that we we might not see without knowing you had a hand in it, for example, the location scout, Doug Dresser. Well, what we do is we go and we find the places to shoot a motion picture or television program, television commercials, where the ones who actually go out and find the actual space to shoot a movie. I've done and worked on movies such as Baby Driver, Kill Bill, and Little Women. And Brian Mendoza, boom operator, you you make it possible for us to hear the actors. That's correct. Uh, the sound department is, in, is responsible for recording all of the sound on set. So a lot of the times we're either following people around, holding a microphone over their head or, or putting microphones on their bodies. Some of the uh, most recent Projects that I've worked on include uh, Joker, Folia Do, the new Joker sequel, um, Barbie, and uh, Ford versus Ferrari is another good one. 
Barbie, you worked on Barbie. Sorry. <laughs> I did. Well, let me ask you both, how how's business been recently? Mr. Dresser? Well, you know, as you, <laughs> as you can imagine, it has been rather slow. I think that the, one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was that it's not just the millionaire actors and these big famous people that you see all the time, but there's tens of thousands of people that work in the industry supporting the motion picture and television business that are, that are out of work and we're hurting. There is very, very little work to do. Um, there is still a little bit here and there, non-union stuff and commercials that are, that are still filming, but there's very, very little of that. We've just been trying to find ways to keep ourselves busy and, uh, and find other ways to make money. The bank accounts are all getting pretty tight at this time. When you say other ways to make money, and I don't mean to be flip about this, I mean, does that mean driving Uber or Lyft or what? Uh, it really means just about anything. I, I have a friend who actually just got a job at, at Six Flags Magic Mountain last week in order to keep the bills paid. Doug Dresser, what do you hear from friends and colleagues? It's terrible. I mean, we have friends that are that are digging into their retirement funds. They're taking their children's college funds just to pay the bills and to make their mortgages. Some of them are moving out of their houses, moving in their downsizing because we don't know how much longer this is going to go. I'm personally a teamster and we're not officially on strike. So we don't get some of the strike benefits that the, that the Screen Actors Guild or the Writers Guild members are getting. There are some funds that have been started that are trying to help industry workers that are affected by the strike, but the money is short and it's difficult to get to. Brian Mendoza, uh, how do you feel about the strike if it comes at your expense? You know, I have a lot of writer and actor friends, so I, I am in support of the strike. Absolutely. It's just making things very rough. I would like to say that our union has been helping out a lot, though. They've been putting on food drives and trying to help people with their medical hours in order to keep their insurance. I have to ask you, finally, do you and your friends and colleagues talk about how much longer you might be able to, to hold out? Yes, that's actually been a common conversation. We've run through our savings at this point, and we're all trying to figure out how we're all going to stay afloat, hoping that this is going to end soon. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about it all the time. It's the only thing we have to talk about, aside from our children. And really, ironically, what movies we're watching on TV. And if anything, what we learned in COVID is that our family time is priceless. And we spend a lot of time away from our families. We have to work 12 15 hours a day sometimes on a movie set, the locations department. And so we do always appreciate the time that we have when we're able to be home and we're in between shows and we can do that, but we plan for it. This, much like the pandemic, is unexpected and it's lasted a lot longer than we expected. Doug Dresser, a location scout, and Brian Mendoza, boom operator in the film industry. Thank you both so much for being with us. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. There's a rock called Devil's Thumb that stands about 9,000 feet over the Pacific Ocean. It's across from a tiny Alaskan town near the Canadian border, and it's well known among rock climbers, even though, or maybe because only, about 50 people have made it to the summit. From Petersburg, Alaska, KFSK's Shelby Herbert brings us this profile of one man 
who's had a long love affair with that mountain. Standing outside his little cabin on the edge of the rainforest, Dieter Close gazes out at the ocean. He built this place in the shadow of the giant rock. On this day, a wall of fog blocks his view, but Close knows exactly what's behind those clouds. It looks just like a, a German beer stein. It's a little wider at the bottom, so it doesn't tip over when you're drunk. There's only room for one person at the top, and you can just barely stand if you have the courage. Close stood there himself, twice. He can't even count how many unsuccessful climbs it took. His best guess is a dozen. He's the only person to make it halfway up the unclimbed northwest face and come back alive. Close has been climbing since he was a kid. He moved to Petersburg in 1982. At first, he lived behind a cemetery in a borrowed tent. It got torn up by a bear, and, and a friend of mine told me, hey, there's a boat for sale uh, for 200 bucks. And I thought, great, and I'll get to look at Devil's Thumb. Close says it wasn't love at first sight, or first summit. His enchantment with the mountain grew over the course of his life. It had everything I wanted from mountains, everything that satisfied me by climbing. It's difficult by any side, and it it's not super high altitude, which is great. You're totally alone, and it's a wild-looking thing. Close is a home builder by trade. He hurt his back at work a few years ago. The injury all but ended his climbing career. But he's still known to climbers in the region as the godfather of the Stikine ice caps. I mean, Dieter is uh, hes key to anybody who comes here to climb. That's world-class climber Tommy Caldwell. He came up north recently to climb Devil's Thumb and shoot a documentary about it. Dieter advised him and his climbing partner, Alex Honnold. I mean, there's just nobody else that knows nearly as much about the Devil's Thumb. Yeah. He's like the local custodian. He's like managing the mountain. Close helped draft their route. It tags every peak up and down the whole massif, over the twin summits of the Witch's Towers, the slender Cat's Ears Spires, and then the looming cathedral of Devil's Thumb itself. Caldwell says those features were as wicked as the sound of their names. All of the summits are like incredibly pointy. Yeah, you climb up it and you're sitting on the summit and there's like thousands and thousands of feet drop on either side of you. It's one of the more like exposed feeling summits I've ever seen in my life. Hours before they left Alaska, both climbers came by to write in a book that Dieter Close keeps about the mountain. They sketched out a map of their route that took up two whole pages. Back in front of his cabin, Close gazes across the sound. He says the view is actually better from down here. You're not necessarily enjoying yourself on difficult climbs. You're getting tired and thirsty, hungry, all of that. And it's not until you get back into the valley and look up at that mountain and then you get some real joy out of it. Climbing Devil's Thumb today would be difficult for him, but Dieter Close says he still dreams about one last summit. For NPR News, I'm Shelby Herbert in Petersburg, Alaska. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. About 39,000 customers in Massachusetts are dealing with power outages this morning after yesterday's storms. Most of the outages are in areas north of Boston. Andover was hardest hit. 77% of its customers are still without power. In North Andover, outages are affecting 41% of customers. Some MBTA changes are in effect on the commuter rail because of damage from yesterday's storms. Trains on the Haverhill line will originate and end at Ballardvale. Also on the Haverhill line, starting today, buses are replacing trains between Reading and Oak Grove. That is in place through early November. On the Red Line, shuttle buses are replacing trains between Braintree and Quincy Center from 8.45 p.m. until the end of service, both today and tomorrow. It's 74 degrees in Boston, scattered showers today, a chance of some thunderstorms, and highs reaching the mid-80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And the half-god of rainfall at ART, women and goddesses rise up against Zeus in this modern-day myth Two weeks only, now playing, amrep.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Josh Gondelman was not too impressed with the idea of official New York City rat tours. As a New Yorker, I feel like rat, oh, that's the tourist thing. You want a real New York experience, go see the roaches. That's yeah. I'm Peter Sago. When you listen to this week's News Quiz, don't turn on the lights. We might all scurry away. Join us for the News Quiz that observes all kinds of creatures in their natural habitat. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Is there any good news out there? Well, maybe. Last week, we read a story in the LA Times about Amelia Air, a nonprofit organization that's flying animals in overcrowded shelters to less crowded shelters and rescue centers. The flights are commanded by private pilots who need to log regular flight hours to maintain their licenses. And we're joined now by Petra Janney of Silver Lake, California, right outside Los Angeles, one of the founders of Amelia Air. Thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be with you, Scott. How did this idea come about? So it's a wonderful story. I was working on an engineering firm at the time, tackling some very different challenges to animal rescue when I met Dean Heistad and his wife, Katie. And Dean's a pilot, and he told me how they had rescued their family dog in a general aviation plane. Now, she's a Great Dane, so a very large dog, and she had unfortunately been neglected. And they were a bit worried about how they were going to get her into the plane to get her to safety. Well, it turns out that she must have known she was on to the sweet life because she climbed right up on the wing, made a beeline for the (sighs) cockpit, and it turns out that she loves to fly. (laughs) Yep. 
they named her after another boundless aviator, of course, Amelia Earhart. And so Amelia is really the inspiration for our nonprofit. So when Dean and Katie told me this story and they, they said they wanted to leverage the aviation community to help more pets in need like Amelia, I said, absolutely, we have to build this. So while they were flying our first rescue flights, I was kind of behind the scenes helping to build the nonprofit structure and, and website and getting us off the ground. Wow. Tell us how this works. I, I mean, you so you there there are shelters all over this country that have too many animals, and I don't want to get unpleasant about it. Then they can care for, in in which case, they sometimes have to do critical things. That's right. So we make every effort to help whenever we can. So it's a very intense logistical operation, trying to figure out how to maximize the number of pets that we can save with the resources we have available, with the pilots we have available. Uh, and with the partners that we have. So typically we will get a call from one of our rescue partners and they will let us know that they are at capacity and can we help. So for example, Ginger's Place Rescue in Porterville, California will reach out with some dogs and cats that they are looking to place in rescue to avoid euthanasia. And then our team will start looking for partners that have capacity and it's basically a, a big mission to mm. play Tetris and connect the dots to find a place for these pets to go. Uh, in the process, we are looking through our roster of volunteer pilots, seeing who's available, who has an aircraft that can fit the roster of animals who need to be rescued. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's a big undertaking to plan the mission and ensure that everything goes off without a hitch. So we're very proud of our our process and we plan every single flight to ensure that we're helping the maximum number of pets per mission. My gosh. A any idea how many uh, animals you've been able to help? We've helped around 1,500 animals. So we launched uh, about four years ago and we've operated almost entirely during the pandemic. And we've seen a real change in the trends of animal rescue since the pandemic has kind of wound down. So. We were seeing uh, lower euthanasia rates is around 7% nationally in 2021. Unfortunately, that's now up to around 10% nationally. And oh. it's due to pet overpopulation and people not getting their dogs fixed, not getting their cats fixed. And unfortunately, we really need people to choose to adopt instead of shopping because there's so many beautiful and deserving animals that need homes. I'm trying to imagine what it's like to fly somewhere uh, and get animals who, you know, might be near the end of their lives because of euthanasia. And then to see them come on board a plane with a whole new life, that must be a very happy flight home. I can tell you there's no better feeling in the world than going to pick up animals who would otherwise likely perish and getting them safe and getting them to a place where they're going to be a beloved part of the family. There's just no better feeling in the world. And though it's easy to feel overwhelmed by the scale of the problem, it's through action that you actually discover how powerful you yeah. can be. And in my experience, being brave enough to take that first step, it really inspires others to join you. Petra Janney is co-founder of Amelia Air. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joe Posnanski's new book reminds us that those of us who love baseball often speak of its magic moments, not 
winning World Series and home run records so much as, did you see that throw from right? Can you believe that play? Do you remember that night? His new book, Why We Love Baseball, A History in 50 Moments, and Joe Poznanski, a former Sports Illustrated columnist who has been named National Sports Writer of the Year by five different organizations, joins us from St. Louis today. Thanks so much for being with us, Joe. I'm so happy to be with you, Scott. So this is NPR. How do we define a baseball moment? Um, I would say you define a baseball moment by something that you see that you take home with you. Something that you think about either days later, weeks later, months later, years later. I think of baseball moments, some that are in this book, that I was in my car listening on the radio and the moment was so overwhelming. Of course, the announcer's call was so great. And, uh, and I will never forget it. I'll never forget where I was. Let's not delay. Carlton Fisk's home run for the Boston Red Sox to win the sixth game of the 1975 World Series, sometimes called the best single game ever played. We will have a seventh game in this 1975 World Series. Carlton Fisk becomes the first player in the series to hit one over the wall into the net. But, of course, they didn't win the World Series. They just won that sixth <laughs> game and the picture of Carlton Fisk dancing on his toes. Tell us the story of how we came to see that picture. Yeah, I, I love the story so much because the camera guy in left field was supposed to follow the ball. That was his job. But as the story goes, the cameraman actually saw a rat very close to the camera during the at-bat. And he ended up sort of panicking a little bit and training his camera on Carlton Fisk instead of following the ball. So what we see is Carlton Fisk dancing up the line, waving, waving, trying to move the ball fair. And it's probably the most iconic shot in the history of baseball on television. And it was captured all because of a rat at Fenway Park. Oh, my gosh. Let me ask you about what I'll call a, a prolonged and largely unheralded moment. Jackie Robinson, his integration of Major League Baseball, one of the few examples where I, I, I think baseball history is American history. A little less than three months later, Larry Doby, black player, joined the Cleveland Indians. And he was mentored, if you please, by a coach in center field who was considered the greatest center fielder of all time, but had some drawbacks as a mentor, wasn't he? So you're talking about Tris Speaker, who, yes, to this day, many consider him the greatest defensive center fielder. And Cleveland calls up Larry Doby, and Larry Doby had never played center field before. And so they brought in Tris Speaker to mentor him. Tris Speaker, when he was young, was a member of the KKK. He was pretty outspoken about some of his views, particularly of the Civil War. And what ended up happening was he loved Larry Doby. And he tutored, mentored Larry Doby to the point where he not only became a great center fielder, but when Larry Doby was in the Hall of Fame, when he was inducted, he thanked Tris Speaker as the man who helped him get there. I have to ask you about what might be the funniest moment 
1993, Jose Canseco, then of the Texas Rangers, great home run hitter, former MVP, settles under a fly ball in right center field. What happened, Joe? <laughs> he, he settles under these, he's drifting back and drifting back, and he kind of loses the ball. He wasn't a great outfielder anyway, but he was certainly Checking competent, and he's checking the wall, and the ball reaches up. It's him right in the head. He goes over the top. <laughs> it hit Canseco in the head and bounced over the wall for a homer. Look at this. Boink. I don't think there's ever been anything in sports that felt more cartoonish. His reaction to getting hit on the head with the ball, the sort of confusion about what had exactly happened, his teammates just breaking out laughing. I think it is the funniest moment in baseball history. Let me ask you finally about what is often referred to as the um, most controversial moment still. Game 3, 1932 World Series, Cubs versus Yankees, Wrigley Field. Score tied in the fifth. Cub fans were rude and vulgar to Babe Ruth. He takes two strikes from Charlie Root, the pitcher. Then what happened? It's in some dispute. It is a mystery to this day, I think, of exactly what happened. What we do know is that the Cubs dugout was really riding Ruth, and he was really, you know, sort of riding them back. And we know he made some very grand gestures with his hand. There are those who say he held up his finger just to say it only takes one swing. And there are some who say he held up two fingers because they say he was saying, okay, I have two strikes and watch what I do now. But the most, of course, uh, glorious interpretation of what happened is that he pointed to center field beyond the flagpole and on the very next pitch hit the ball to exactly where he said it was pointing for what is remembered as the called shot home run. Everybody has a completely different opinion about what happened. And I just, I just love that so much. So much of baseball to me is mythology and there's no play that has more mythology than the called shot. Joe Posnanski's new book, Why We Love Baseball, A History in 50 Moments. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. You've changed the way we shop in America dramatically. You can see some of the latest changes in what's left of American shopping malls. One industry group says at least a quarter of the malls in the United States will close in the next few years. Dina Pritchett reports from a mall in Portland, Oregon. It's trying to figure out what comes next. The Marshalls at Lloyd Center was a classic anchor store. 32,000 square feet, two stories. Full disclosure, it's where I bought my sheets. But now, there are no racks of discount jeans. There are kids. Just can you pick out this Shooting arrows sewing their own clothes, making movies. Tony Dice is the founder of Trackers Earth, an organization which used to be known as an outdoor camp. Now, they're also at the mall. We had somebody tell us to check out the Lloyd Center. And at first I was like, wait a minute, what? Then he realized it made a lot of sense for kids and their parents. They want good parking, and this is the place to do it. But as time goes by, sometimes during the summer we're going to have warmer weather events, and we might even have days where the AQI due to forest fires isn't great. And the ghost of an old department store makes a lot of sense for that. 
The Lloyd Center, like malls across the country, has lost major tenants. But alongside the empty storefronts, there's a new independent comic store, the occasional roller derby pop-up, and a theater performance in what used to be a Victoria's Secret. Turns out the rotunda where the bras were displayed has surprisingly good acoustics. What a joy in any case to know you are there, as usual, and perhaps awake. Diane Condrat is playing Winnie in this Samuel Beckett play. She spends the entire performance in front of what used to be the fitting rooms. This sort of reimagining of the mall is happening across America, because America has a lot of malls. I think almost any expert you talk to is going to say, we overbuilt the malls. Ellen Dunham-Jones directs the urban design program at Georgia Tech. She says America has twice as much mall space per capita as any other country in the world. We're at a point now where more than a third of the 1,500 properties are no longer functioning as malls. Some have just been bulldozed, but some have been filled with things you can't get online. So we start to see more gyms, more grocery stores. But in general, really, the number one reuse of malls has been to just convert them to office space. Healthcare and education compete for the number two spot. But Dunham Jones says you also see housing and paintball. There's a mall in Massachusetts that their former Macy's is going to have cultivation of marijuana on the second floor and retail sales on the first floor. Buying weed or seeing an existential play where you used to do back-to-school shopping can be an enjoyably disorienting experience. But can that bring in the money to maintain these giant buildings and giant parking lots? At Portland's Lloyd Center, Kristen Kennedy showed up on a Friday afternoon to see a performance piece at the mall's skating rink. You can see that there's a infinity symbol carved into the ice that's part of the bigger thing in this particular mall where artists have been taking over some spaces. Kennedy is the artistic director at Portland's Institute for Contemporary Art. She appreciates how the mall is taking the bones of what's left behind and playing around, building something new. And yeah, that feels like America, like failure and invention simultaneously. Maybe, like many malls, this one can't be saved. Or maybe it'll remain a haven for creativity or office space or something we can't even yet imagine. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett in Portland, Oregon. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public and from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues here on 90.9 WBUR. Listen for the Moth Radio Hour this evening at 6. Catch Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me both this morning and tomorrow morning at 10. And more. Listen anywhere this weekend on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Historic New England, inviting you to spend time with New England's storytellers this fall. 
tour their 38 historic house museums, visit their gardens and landscapes, and enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at historicnewengland.org. And Emerson Colonial Theater presenting a conversation with NPR's Ira Glass and Jad Abumrad this September 30th. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. After decades of trying to distance itself from sports betting, the National Football League is embracing it like never before. This was a league that was staunchly against gambling, and then literally when money got thrown in their face, they completely uh, hit a 180 and was like, give us all the money. A look into sports gambling and the NFL on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time in this hour, a morning edition colleague, Michelle Martin, traveling with the U.S. delegation in Chad, tells us what she's seen in a refugee camp there. Also, institutes of former presidents of both parties join in a statement on democracy. And we go to an Arizona copper mine where they're drilling for copper to make solar panels, which requires water, lots. That's just a big, big new demand for water in a time that Arizona just doesn't have much water to spare. And later the weekend ahead at the U.S. Open, first we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, September 9, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. In Morocco, more than 800 people are confirmed dead and more feared killed after an earthquake struck a mountainous area outside of Marrakesh last night, reducing buildings to rubble in a historic region that's difficult for rescuers to reach. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports. This was a powerful earthquake, about 6.8 in magnitude, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, and it lasted several seconds. And then the agency said another earthquake, 4.9 magnitude, hit about 19 minutes later. The epicenter is in the Atlas Mountains, and the problem with that is the damage spans at about across about five provinces to remote villages that are hard to reach. So rescuers have been working through the night, but the death toll has been rising quickly. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock reporting. The G20 has issued a statement on Russia's war in Ukraine calling on all states to avoid seizing territory by force. But the statement does not explicitly condemn Russia. Leaders from Russia and China have avoided the gathering. Also today at the summit in New Delhi, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that the African Union has been welcomed into the G20 as a permanent member. He spoke at the opening ceremony. We have proposed that the African Union must be given full membership of the G20, and I am sure that all of us agree on the same. With the agreement of the G20 members, before starting the proceedings, I invite the African Union president to take their place as a full member of the G20. 
Modi heard there through a BBC interpreter. President Biden is there, too, working on initiatives with G20 partners to scale up the World Bank to support developing countries and to roll out a shipping and rail corridor connecting India and the Middle East to Europe. Former President Donald Trump has secured a key endorsement in the presidential race from South Dakota's Republican governor, who herself has mulled running for the nomination. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports from Rapid City. Governor Kristi Noem gave her backing to the former president in front of a sold-out crowd in Rapid City. He has my full and complete endorsement for president of the United States of America. I will do everything I can to help him win and save this country. Noam has long been loyal to Trump, but her endorsement also shifts speculation about her own political future away from seeking the GOP nomination herself toward being a possible running mate for Trump. It was Trump's first appearance since pleading not guilty to racketeering charges in Georgia. He criticized those charges and others included in three other indictments against him, saying they're being used as a political weapon. For NPR News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Rapid City. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Nearly 40,000 Massachusetts customers are without power after storms yesterday brought wind gusts of more than 55 miles an hour. The severe thunderstorms and heavy rainfall also contributed to knocking down some power lines. The worst hit areas are north of Boston, including Andover. 77% of Andover customers are without power this morning. Andover Police Lieutenant Chuck Edgerly says the downed trees are forcing several roads to remain closed this morning. Uh, Right now, we're asking people in Andover that if they don't need to go out on the road, uh, just to stay home for now so that the utility crews can get out there and get their restoration process going without being affected by unnecessary traffic. National Grid says it is bringing in additional contractors to respond to the damage. A Haverhill man will face more than eight years in prison for an identity theft conspiracy. 40-year-old Alvin Rivera pleaded guilty to several wire fraud-related charges earlier this year and was sentenced in a Boston federal court yesterday. Prosecutors say Rivera led a conspiracy for three years in Massachusetts. He used stolen identity information to buy at least 47 cars and get more than $450,000 of pandemic relief money. The UMass football team is trying to shake off a 45-point loss to Auburn with a victory in this afternoon's home opener in Amherst. UMass is 1-1 one one on the season. Coach Don Brown was clearly disappointed by the team's performance last weekend. Not a good day to be a UMass Minuteman for sure, but I really believe our guys will, uh, we will rebound, we will practice hard, and we'll be back next week ready to go. UMass is up against Miami of Ohio today. This afternoon at Fenway, the Red Sox play the Orioles. Tonight, the Revs are on the road against Minnesota. It's 76 degrees in Boston with scattered showers today and a chance of thunderstorms highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. 
President Biden's at the G20 summit in India. The official agenda centers around climate change and economic security. An unofficial goal, at least for the U.S., is to try to provide an alternative to a rising China. For the past decade, China has used its so-called Belt and Road Initiative to create better relations through massive infrastructure loans. Nearly 150 countries have participated. Giulio Pulesi teaches Europe-Asia studies at the European University Institute. He joins us now from Rome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. First, help us understand what China set out to do 10 years ago with Belt and Road and uh, and has it worked? Sure. Uh, effectively, the fundamentals of the Belt and Road Initiative are economic. Um, China has tried to export its overcapacity, which couldn't be uh, met by domestic demand, uh, by effectively engaging uh, in uh, massive uh, infrastructure loans, as you mentioned, uh, and it's near abroad to start with. That's why it was announced uh, in Central Asia and Indonesia precisely 10 years ago. And uh, with uh, a little bit of help from the Central Propaganda Department, uh, the Belt and Road uh, effectively became a grand strategic narrative about China's unstoppable rise uh, and uh, its willingness to harness uh, the uh, uh, markets of emerging countries and developing economies uh, to uh, provide loans for infrastructure and uh, through those loans uh, foster better relations uh, with uh, what China would claim is going to become uh, the first and uh, largest economy in the world. And so this was a win-win game where China would have had uh, more interactions, economic interactions uh, with these countries, also through trade eventually but especially at the beginning with investment loans. And uh, this would have also guaranteed the Chinese subcontractor companies to work on these infrastructure projects, uh, export uh, its industrial champions. And uh, through that economic interaction and deepening interaction, have bigger, larger, deeper uh, political heft. Italy has uh, participated, hasn't it? Yes, and this was um, a very uh, peculiar moment in Italian history where a populist government wanted to take back control, uh, to uh, paraphrase uh, Brexit, uh, away from Brussels and claim that uh, they would be able to show results by signing deals with uh, countries with which Italy was traditionally a bit shy, such as China. And so the result uh, of all this, to cut a long story short, was to do a very symbolic and shallow memorandum of understanding with China in March of 2019 to show that Italy was about to harness a better relationship with China, to have more access to the Chinese market through a rather symbolic political statement. Mm -hmm. Has China's strategy been successful? No, it has received a major pushback. And this was the unfortunate thing for Italy. That pushback, especially from the US, was brewing in 2018, but it really kick-started in 2019. And so there was international pushback against China's perceived neo-colonial infrastructure project. And at the same time, it now has um, a lot of problems domestically because uh, 
there has been not just debt trap diplomacy on the recipient country's side, but also on China's side, meaning that Chinese loans uh, uh, do not necessarily then uh, equate in uh, strategic collateral or, in fact, uh, on the ability of those recipient countries to pay back those Chinese loans. So there are countries that are just not paying the loans back to China? Right. China's policy banks and uh, public finances uh, do find themselves uh, in a tight spot, especially as China's economic growth, uh, as we're witnessing these days, uh, mm-hmm. is not uh, as uh, taken for granted as it used to be. Do you, uh, do you think China will increase the investment it, uh, it, it's going to make in the Belt and Road program now, or does it have the wherewithal to do that right now? That's a very interesting question because it ties back uh, to uh, the uh, analysis uh, of uh, China's economic woes. Uh, China is scaling back down many of its uh, very deep uh, pocket-based infrastructure loans. Uh, But China is nonetheless uh, the second uh, largest world economy and uh, it makes uh, perfect economic sense uh, to, of course, foster markets and economies uh, from which it can import commodities uh, or through which it can actually export uh, its own industrial champions and its overcapacity. So I think that it's scaling back down, but it's uh, it's too early to declare its death. That's for sure. Giulio Pulesi of the European University Institute, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. The United Nations Human Rights Council expects the number of refugees crossing into Chad from Sudan to reach roughly 600,000 by the end of the year. That's after more than 400,000 people have already fled the renewed violence in Sudan since April. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, has traveled to Chad this week to visit a makeshift refugee camp that's near the country's border with Sudan. Nearly 200,000 people live in that camp near the town of Adre, but food and medical supplies are low. Our colleague and Morning Edition co-host Michelle Martin traveled with the USUN ambassador and joins us now from Cabo Verde. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Scott, thanks for having us. What have you seen? Scott, I've been trying to describe the scale of this for people. And we're talking about these very makeshift shelters as far as the eye can see. You're talking about, you know, maybe a scarf thrown over a bunch of twigs to create a little bit of shelter from the sun. You're talking about like plastic sheeting, you know, tarps, whatever. And even as we were at the border, we walked to the border, we saw people coming across with horse-drawn carts or donkey-drawn carts or even on foot. Very few people had cars, you know, piled high with whatever they could carry. And of course, along with their family members. So it's just a very distressing scene. And I asked Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, I mean, obviously, you know, she's been a career diplomat. She's been all over the world. She spent quite a few years in Africa. She's seen sort of these kinds of mass exoduses before. And I asked her what stood out for her. And this is what she said. It was the, the lack of hope the fear that people express uh, to me as I spoke to them about why they were crossing the border, Uh, seeing children uh, in the hospital who were malnourished, and seeing uh, the amazing but desperate work that was being done by uh, UN and NGO humanitarian 
workers to save lives. It was extraordinarily emotional and it was extraordinarily sad, but it was also hopeful uh, in the sense that these people were being welcomed uh, with open arms by the Chadian people. Michelle, by all accounts, Chad is, uh, is one of the poorest countries in the world. So it's extraordinary to hear from the ambassador how the people of Chad have, have been very welcoming. You've seen this too. Yes, it, it, it was remarkable. And uh, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, is also here touring the settlement. And I asked him this question because I said it is, it is noteworthy given how much hostility that refugees have faced in other parts of the world. And I asked him why he thought that the situation seemed to be so different here. And, and this is what he said. Certainly. Um, there is a tradition here. And I heard them say many times, for example, we've been refugees ourselves. This should never be underestimated. In Africa, this is unfortunately frequent. You have people in government that were refugees, so they're sensitive to that and understand what it means to be pushed back, which maybe in other countries, including rich countries, is not always clear or uh, conscious. Scott, I do want to mention that the people in chat, and we had the opportunity to uh, spend some time there. We also heard from local journalists there who came to you know, interview the ambassador, Filippo Grandi. And one of the things that they said is, Yes, this is true that we are welcoming these refugees, but we need help. And they are hoping that the international community will support not just the immediate relief for the refugees, but also some development strategies that will help Chad and the people here sustain themselves in the long run, because nobody here seems to think that this situation is going to end anytime soon. What more can the U.S. and international community do with, uh, I gather, no resolution in sight to end the fighting there. Well, while we were here, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield announced a, a number of measures. She announced that the United States will be donating even more aid than they have been. I mean, the United States is already the largest donor to uh, relief efforts here. She announced additional aid. She also announced sanctions against a key individual who's involved in the fighting and visa restrictions on another individual who's involved in the fighting. But part of the purpose of this trip by her, by Filippo Grandi, and also there's a World Bank executive we understand is on the ground, to, to encourage people to think more long term about development in these regions and to think about addressing some of the factors that lead people to have to leave their homes to begin with. Uh, but the message here was the fighting has to stop. I mean, that is the immediate cause of this mass exodus. And also the ambassador said that, you know, the UN General Assembly uh, meeting is, is starting in New York. She will be heading there next. And she is hoping to draw more attention to this at the Security Council in hopes that other world leaders will put more pressure on the parties involved in the fighting to get them to uh, come to some agreement. Our colleague Michelle Martin, Morning Edition co-host, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9.18, and coming up in about 10 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story on a competitive culinary team at a Connecticut high school starting the year with big dreams of a national championship. You'll get that and more ahead on Weekend Edition. It is 76 degrees in Boston, some scattered showers today, a chance of thunderstorms and highs in the mid-80s. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with Fiesta and La Plaza, a five-day series of events honoring Latinx Heritage Month. Boston.gov slash Fiesta and La Plaza. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. In Morocco, the death toll from last night's powerful earthquake has now topped 1,000 people. The interior minister there says rescuers are working to reach people in a mountainous, remote region, some 45 miles outside of Marrakesh, a historic city that also sustained damage. Hurricane Lee is expected to bring dangerous rip currents to the eastern U.S. coast as soon as this weekend. But it's too soon to specify where it may hit as it travels well north of the Virgin Islands. The FDA is ready to greenlight new COVID-19 booster shots, updated versions of the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines. They target a more recent strain of the Omicron variant and are expected to lower the risk of hospitalization and death. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from the station and from PBS with The Harvest, integrating Mississippi schools. American Experience tells the story of a southern town's effort to integrate its public schools in 1970. Tuesday at 9, 8 central on PBS. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs, for chefs, and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A short statement was issued this week in defense of democracy here in the United States. It includes the following. As a diverse nation of people with different backgrounds and beliefs, democracy holds us together. It was issued by the presidential centers of 13 American presidents, including Obama, Reagan, Franklin Roosevelt, and Hoover. The statement was organized by the George W. Bush Institute, and its executive director, David Kramer, joins us now from Dallas. Thanks so much for being with us, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for the opportunity. What made it important to issue the statement now? We certainly are living through some challenging times these days. But we thought it was important to step back from the day-to-day headlines and to remind ourselves and remind our fellow American citizens of what makes our country great, what makes the United States so unique. And it's that we're founded on ideals of freedom and democracy. And so we wanted to emphasize the importance of compassion and tolerance, pluralism, respect for others. And we wanted to come together in a bipartisan, even nonpartisan spirit to make this unprecedented statement. The centers and foundations have never done this before. Yeah. And well, but why now? Is there something going on in this country that made you feel it was necessary? Well, the statement is not directed at any individual, any campaign, even next year's election. We think this is a statement that can stand for the foreseeable future. It's a positive statement. It's a forward-leaning statement. It's also an acknowledgement that when our house is in disarray, it undermines our efforts to be a leader on the global scene. 
I have to be blunt. It has nothing to do with Donald Trump or people who deny the results of the 2020 election that Joe Biden won. We don't focus on an individual. We do recognize that there have been questions raised about the integrity of our elections. We have been conducting elections in this country for a long, long time. And while maybe they're not perfect, we actually do know how to conduct free and fair elections. We also think that there's a need for bipartisanship and compromise on occasion. You know, Mr. Kramer, we hear from people every day who say they don't want compromise. They don't want to hear contrary viewpoints. Debate and disagreement in a democracy are absolutely vital. It's important to be challenged when one holds views. But at the end of the day, it's also important to get things done. And yes, I recognize that bipartisanship, compromise, those have become dirty words to some. But when you have a narrow majority in the House or the Senate, or you have different parties holding the White House and the Congress, there is a need to come together to get things done. It doesn't mean everyone has to agree, but it does mean that at some point you need a majority to approve things that a president can sign. How involved was former President Bush in writing this? He saw the statement, he approved it, and it was based on that that we then reached out to the other presidential centers and we got a very enthusiastic response. I don't have to tell you, the Eisenhower Foundation didn't sign. They said there should have been a collective discussion prior to the statement. Yeah, they, you know, it's up to them, uh, really, for them to, to address that issue. I'll, I'll let them speak for themselves. You, you say, Mr. Kramer, this isn't timed with the approach of the 2024 election. I still have to ask you, would this statement have been issued if... I'm not even going to say the name. A certain candidate wasn't leading in the polls as the Republican primary choice at the moment. As a matter of fact, it would have, because the idea for this statement actually was something we had last year. And we then put it on the shelf and uh, decided... I, I don't think that person was any less popular last year. It, it, it may, maybe not, but it isn't about one individual. Um, I, I understand the question and, and respect your, your need to ask it. But we are focused on where we are as a country, not where we are in any polls. We've been in ups and downs throughout our history, and there's no linear path to democratic development. But we wanted to remind our fellow citizens that we are a greater nation when we are united. Doesn't mean we agree on everything, but there are times where we have to come together in, for, in order for, to advance the greater good. David Kramer is executive director of the George W. Bush Institute. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Now it's time for sports. U.S. Open Championship Weekend and an upset already. The NFL season opens with a huge upset. Damar Hamlin back in uniform. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. You got it, Scott. U.S. Open Women's Final today. 19-year-old Coco Gauff uh, plays for her first career Grand Slam title. Of course, she's going to face uh, Arena Zabulenka of Belarus. What do you expect? Should be an exciting match. Uh, Sabalenka is bigger and stronger. Goff is going to have to be more aggressive defensively to keep from having Sabalenka really dictate this match. But on the plus side for Goff, she said she feels really fresh heading into this final, and that might contrast with Sabalenka, who's had to really grit it out through a long three-set semi 
take off those scots, she's going to have huge crowds support this afternoon as she looks to become the first American U.S. Open champion since 2017. Men's side, uh, Daniil uh, Medvedev of Russia upset. I'll say he upset him. Carlos Alcaraz of Spain last night. <laughs> uh, so the final is going to be against uh, Novak Djokovic. Um, what do you see there? You know, it's a rematch of the 2021 U.S. Open men's final. Medvedev beat Joker. That was his first and only Grand Slam win. And he said he's going to be really leaning into that history to strategize uh, for the final, saying that Novak is never the same after he loses. That's why he has 23 Grand Slams. Medvedev is going to have to be better than he was that day because he's expecting Joker to be. NFL season began with a... Huge upset. Uh, Patrick oh, yeah. McCombs of the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs lost at home to the Detroit Lions. Uh, Lions fans haven't <laughs> haven't had, been able to celebrate anything like this for 32 years. What do you uh, do? You think this is a golden season for them? Yeah, you know the lowly Lions, the same old Lions. It's not that way anymore, boy. If you saw that game Thursday night, they looked good uh, beating the Super Bowl winners, the defending Super Bowl champs, the Chiefs. I talked to a, a couple of uh, Lions players in the locker room, and they told me that a win like this is going to set the tone for the rest of the season. Oh. And it's so rare that you hear that from guys. Usually it's a, it's a, it's one game, it's a long season. This wasn't just another game, Scott. And if if they roll on like they did on Thursday night, Detroit fans are going to have to get used to winning yeah. and not being the underdog. Big game Monday night, Aaron Rodgers. Uh, first time we've seen him, well, I guess preseason. He'll be in a Jets uniform. Uh, and they face the Buffalo Bills. DeMar Hamlin, safety for the Bills, will be back in uniform for the first time uh, since collapsing on the field in January. What do you foresee in this game? Well, he is listed as the fourth string safety on the Bills roster, but that's not the most important part. The most important part is just going to be seeing him out there after his cardiac arrest last season. It's going to be emotional, I think, Scott, and certainly a testament to how remarkable his recovery has been. Um, he's expected to be limited to special teams. There's also the chance he's a healthy scratch for this game. And, you know, sometimes NFL coaches do that just to keep the depth chart balanced, but like I said, just him being out there in uniform after seeing him last season laid out on the ground, it's going to be a very powerful moment, I think, for the NFL. Finally tonight, Michelle, the barbecue bowl in Alabama. <laughs> yes, Texas, Alabama's got the marquee matchup of the weekend. If you're a college football fan, you had this date circled in your calendar, and it's so big the mayors of Austin and Tuscaloosa are putting a big old barbecue bet on the outcome. Usually you save this for the college football playoff, but it's such a big game, such a fun matchup that they're doing it early in the season. So it's Texas brisket versus Alabama ribs. I know which one I'm taking. Scott, which one are you taking? Oh, I, 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 I never I never bet against Alabama ribs, and I have the Alka-Seltzer near. <laughs> Michelle, that makes two of us. <laughs> Michelle Steele of ESPN, thanks so much. Sure. He steps on bridges, knocks over buildings, and can carry a tune. <laughs> Maybe 
not just very well. Godzilla has a new TV series coming soon and another movie later today on All Things Considered. Why a Japanese monster, well, I rather like him, continues to fascinate us. You can listen by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. As millions of high schoolers prepare for the beginning of football and soccer season, some teens are starting their training in the kitchen. Every year, aspiring chefs around the country compete in a national culinary competition. Is it more Top Chef for Friday Night Lights? Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Karen King followed one high school team to find out. It's culinary practice at Wilbercross High School, and time is running out. One student spoons butter onto scallops sizzling in a pan. Another puts the finishing touches on dessert. Their teacher, Chef Nate Bradshaw, coaches from the sidelines. How much we have, like 30, 20 seconds? Okay, let's see. Lift one up, let me see on the bottom. Oh, that's good, take it off, take it off. There you go. The students are making their last preparations for the national championship of competitive cooking. There, the five-person team will have one hour to make a three-course meal. Today in the classroom, they go over their time limit, but Bradshaw's still happy. Everything looked great. Everything looked great. Last fine-tuning. Four more practice. Four more. Bradshaw's culinary teams have won nearly every state championship since he started competing 10 years ago. But on the national stage, he says he still feels like they're an underdog. You know, a lot of those schools may have the financial budget. We don't. Some of these schools, some of them is tech schools. Some of them is focused on that trade. Wilbur Cross is the biggest public high school in New Haven, a small city in Connecticut that struggles to fund its schools. Bradshaw says they're not always able to fundraise enough to buy supplies. We take practice like it's the last time you're going to be able to cook. At the national competition, the team won't just be cooking. Another group of students works on the second component of the contest, a business pitch for a new restaurant. Imagine Shark Tank, except the judges they don't give us offers at the end, they give us scores. Adam Sharkawe says his team's concept this year, a West Asian restaurant, was influenced by his Palestinian heritage. It's about giving light to a part of the world that doesn't get that light on the national stage in this country, but also specifically a part that I come from and that means a lot to me. 45 clap, 45 clap, okay? Three weeks later at the national competition in Washington, D.C., the pressure's on for the Connecticut team. In a banquet hall surrounded by hundreds of spectators, they work to prepare a beef tenderloin, seared scallops, and an extra fluffy chocolate sponge cake. Ten seconds. Ten seconds. Hands up. This time, they finish with seconds to spare. Team manager Antonio Mendania says the only critical feedback they got was on how they prepared the beef. Some judges said they loved it, they, they would eat it any day. Some judges said it was too rare for them, but that's more like a preference-based thing. Judges, the next round of the competition begins now. When it's their turn, the restaurant management team gives a rapid-fire presentation of their business plan. Nafa's Kitchen is a cost-casual West Asian restaurant. After they finish, teammate Charlotte Butterbaugh is feeling good. So by all the judges, we got told that we were really good and we were really strong. Got told to slow down a little bit when we were talking, which I admit, yeah, we talked pretty fast, the three of us. Pro Start students, are you ready? Later that night at the award ceremony, the culinary team doesn't end up placing. But when it comes time to announce the management winner... To 2023, 
National ProStart Invitational Management winner is... Connecticut! Everyone on the team jumps up to celebrate and hug. Farkawe is in disbelief. I'm really happy. I'm really proud. I'm really proud of myself. I'm really proud of my team. And I'm, I'm happy that I get to, you know, represent my culture and my family. It's, it's awesome. Sherkawe will return to the team this year as a senior. Over summer break, he started brainstorming new restaurant concepts and recipes with his teammates. But he can't share those ideas just yet. They're top secret until the next competition. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Karen King. Over the past couple of years, <clears throat> the Federal Reserve has been trying to lower inflation, and for decades, conventional wisdom has been for inflation to go down, unemployment needs to go up. Now some economists are questioning that. Here's Planet Money's Willa Rubin. The idea that there's a relationship between inflation and unemployment really got popularized with an economist named Bill Phillips. He was fairly short. He was a chain smoker. He had a strong New Zealand accent. This is Richard Lipsy. He and Phillips were friends. They worked together way back when. And he says Bill Phillips was not your typical academic. He was very adventurous. At one point, was even a crocodile hunter. He was also a tinkerer. He worked as an electrical engineer for a while. And when he turned his attention to economics in the 1940s, he felt like the textbook version was kind of missing something. So he built this machine. Which was a water flow model of how the economy behaved. Picture a giant, transparent, refrigerator-like contraption with lots of pipes for savings or government spending. Water would flow between all these pipes to show how money moved through the economy. Lipsy used the machine when he was at school. And you realize that controlling the economy was far more complicated than the textbooks told you. Complicated, and for Phillips, fascinating. He gets transfixed, trying to figure out how does the economy really work. So Phillips lands at the London School of Economics, and then one day, back in 1957... He came back with this drawing, and here it is. Here's the curve. A curve. Phillips had poured through about 100 years of UK data, and he found a relationship that when lots of people had jobs, inflation tended to go up. But when unemployment was higher, inflation was lower. And the idea of this trade-off between inflation and unemployment, it takes off. Soon, it gets dubbed the Phillips curve, and it becomes a foundation of macroeconomics. And over the next several decades, that foundation largely held up subject to revisions as times changed. But for many years, the Phillips curve was a kind of staple economists used to understand the economy's inner workings. Alan Blinder, famous Princeton economist, he actually applied the principles of the Phillips curve in the 90s when he was vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, says it helped keep the economy stable during his term. But if you ask him now... I'm no longer a devotee of the... Uh... Phillips curve. I've seen the error of my ways. What made him stop believing? It was inflation. It stayed low for decades. Even as unemployment took some wild swings, inflation didn't really budge until recently. And now, as inflation has been coming down, unemployment has remained relatively low, which is good news. But for economists, it also means their understanding of inflation is experiencing some growing pains. The reason it's terrifying is that if you lose your Phillips curve, you don't quite know what to do 
if you need to bring inflation down. To be clear, the Fed has lots of tools it's using to think about inflation. But maybe for this bedrock of economic theory, the Phillips curve, it's time for another rethink. Willa Rubin, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This morning, more than 37,000 Massachusetts customers are without power. Most of the outages are north of Boston, where storms yesterday brought wind gusts of more than 55 miles an hour, along with severe thunderstorms and heavy rainfall. Andover has been hardest hit. 77% of Andover customers are without power this morning. In Andover, several roads are closed because of downed trees, and Andover police are calling on people to stay off the roads if possible so utility crews can get their work done. National Grid says it's bringing in additional contractors to respond to the damage. The city of Cambridge is offering thousands of dollars in new incentives for building owners looking to go green. The $800,000 grant program is geared towards buildings with at least five units. The projects can include switching from gas and oil heating to electric heating. The Massachusetts Clean Energy Center will distribute the grant money to applicants. Today marks the second annual East Boston Latin Music and Dance Festival. The event in East Boston Memorial Park gets underway at 1 this afternoon and features Latin American performers, food, arts and crafts vendors, and children's activities. It is 76 degrees in Boston, scattered showers today, a chance of some thunderstorms, and highs in the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Arts, presenting open studios today and tomorrow. See and shop the creativity that is Cambridge. CambridgeArtsCouncil.org. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution bars from office any public official involved in an insurrection. You could say that January 6th is like the most serious attack on our government, right, domestically, that we've had since the Civil War. Can legal reasoning withstand political reality when it comes to Donald Trump? That's On Point Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A visit now through the gift of literary fiction to a town near Detroit. Magic? Detroit? Give us a chance here. Suburban Dearborn is home to America's largest Arab-American community. Dearborn is also the name of a new collection of short stories set there. And Pierre's Netta Ulibi visited the author. Author Hassan Zenadine no longer lives in Dearborn. He teaches creative writing at Oberlin College in Ohio. 
But when he lived here, he liked to write at this Yemeni coffee house, where he drove to meet me over a latte brewed with cinnamon, ginger, and cardamom. And when I used to come here, I'd always get the Yemeni dessert. It's very sweet, and you put honey on top, right? Cream cheese. Zenadine's short stories are based in an Arab-American community more than 100 years old. Immigrants came to work in Detroit's auto plants. His characters are Coptic, Catholic, Sunni, Shia, Druze, and their jobs range from DJ to gas station owner to a halal butcher, who we meet on a walk on a hot southeast Michigan day. It's July, and I'm walking down Caniff Street in Hamtramck, covered from head to toe in black. I wear a niqab, leaving only a slit for my eyes, and a abaya. Zenadine, reading from his short story titled Yusra. My abaya sticks in my bulk. My underwear is soaked. My feet are blistered and my knees are sore. And with my face covered, I keep smelling my stale breath. But I'm walking free as Yusra. Yusra is not biologically female. Her family knows her as a man named Yasser. But under her long black veil, Yusra can be unhidden. Another irony of the story is that Yusra finds community in a town near Dearborn called Hamtramck that elected the first Muslim-majority city council in the U.S. It's not been LGBT-friendly. It's heartbreaking. Just recently in Hamtramck, there's been a law that bans the LGBTQ flags from being publicly displayed. Zinedine is quick to point out that conservative Muslims are much like conservative members of other religious groups when it comes to LGBT rights. And many of Dearborn's progressive Muslims outspokenly support LGBT people. They include the city's Democratic mayor and Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Arab Americans are no strangers to negative stereotypes, but as we hop into Zenadine's car for a ride around Dearborn, we, both of us, from Arab families, concede one stereotype is richly deserved. I'm always careful when I drive, but especially in Dearborn. Arab drivers, notorious even among other Arab drivers. In one of Hassan Zenadine's short stories, this comes up with a character who's a Lebanese real estate agent. She's driving in Dearborn, she's just cussing out everyone. So we're taking a right on Warren. There's like Rafiq falafel. We used to get falafel sandwiches from here all the time. We pass Arab hair salons and pharmacies and legal offices and daycares and a popular bakery. It's Palestinian owned, if I'm not mistaken. And that's Arbil, an Iraqi restaurant, which is really popular. There is a place called Feiruz, named after the famous Lebanese singer. And there's a hookah joint called Sky Lounge, where author Hassan Zenadine's fictional real estate agent likes to spend her time. There's this one scene where she's just smoking a hookah and drinking a cup of Turkish coffee while she's researching different houses that she might consider purchasing. Zenadine grew up in a Washington, D.C. suburb where there were not a lot of Arabs. Moving to Michigan was a revelation. When my wife and I drove up to Dearborn to buy a house, we drove actually through these neighborhoods. And you just saw all these Arab families out on their front porches, walking the streets. And actually, I'd never seen that before in America. And I just got so excited. I kept telling my wife, oh my God, we made the right decision to come here. It's a dream come true. Back in the Yemeni cafe, author Hassan Zenadine says his next dream is a novel, plumbing his own family history and the history of Arab-American peddlers, like his own great-grandfather in the 1920s. And he peddled goods up and down the mountain roads in West Virginia. So that's one idea, but and yeah, I'm still writing short stories about Dearborn. I'm just so obsessed with this city. Even though he's now teaching hours away at one of the top liberal arts colleges in the country, Hassan Zenadine keeps coming back to Dearborn. The coffee is so good.
the stories so abundant. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Slow Dive, the British rock band, has been making dreamy, guitar-rich records since the early 1990s. They pioneered something called shoegaze, a heavily layered style of music. Dive began a nearly 20-year hiatus in the 1990s, but reunited for a self-titled album in 2017. The group is back now with their fifth record, Everything is Alive. Neil Halstead sings and plays guitar for Slow Dive. He joins us now from Cornwall in the UK. Mr. Halstead, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Good to be back together with your mates. Uh, yeah, I mean, the band got back together in 2014. And yeah, and this is our sort of second record since our second act began, really, I suppose. But yeah, we, we, we get on pretty well and we, we enjoy the kind of touring and making the records and stuff. Part of your group is a guy named Simon Scott, right? That's correct, yep. I can't say he and I are confused for each other, but I'm 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 flattered. Does anybody ever say to him, oh, I hear I... you on the radio? <laughs> Uh, possibly. I know he got mistaken for a very famous um, carp fisherman once when we were coming into the States. <laughs> you mean you're Simon Scott and me share names with a famous carp fisherman? Uh, apparently, yeah. yeah. Well, I am, I am honored. Tell me about shoegazing, if I might put it that way, because it's a kind of a thick guitar sound that creates the dreamy landscape of your music. And how does it get its name again? I think the term originated in the sort of 1990s, and there was a wave of bands, and Slow Dive were one of that sort of group of bands that weren't really famous for having much stagecraft. So we spent a lot of time looking down at our shoes, mostly because we used a lot of guitar pedals. Uh-huh. We were sort of looking to turn, you know, to turn the pedals on and off. And there was this 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 phrase was sort of coined in the early 90s by a, a journalist from The Melody Maker, which is a British music magazine. And um, it kind of stuck. And now it's sort of become a, you know, weirdly enough, it's sort of a, a genre of music now. Which emphasizes the guitar to to do what when it tells a story musically? Um, I think originally all those sort of bands weren't really interested in having vocals that you could really hear. I mean, the most sort of famous band would be My Buddy Valentine and, you know, the vocals are very much buried in the mix. The guitars are very, very loud and they don't really sound like guitars, you know, so it's um, it, it's a very sort of effect-heavy kind of version of pop music, I suppose. Let me ask you about your cut, uh, Kisses.
Taking all the ghosts to hurt while everything starts anew. Is this uh, an album that comes out of a sense of taking on a new life or redefining your life? A lot of the, the album is, is sort of about time passing, I suppose. And I suppose, you know, seeing as we're all getting on a bit now, that's sort of one of the things we're writing the songs about. And yeah, and I think Kisses is sort of a song about, you know, having a second act, having a different chance in life, I suppose. How does this, what we're hearing, the layering process work? I mean, this is definitely a sort of a cleaner version of Slow Dive, I think, in the sense that the volume is, is down a little bit. It's not as heavy maybe on this record as they are on some of the other records. But there's still, yeah, there's still a lot of layers to the sound. And, you know, it's built up by guitar tracks or there's some kind of synthesizer tracks and stuff like that. You know, some of the tracks are just instrumentals, which is sort of normal for us. And, you know, some of them are kind of more like pop tunes, you know, but they all, I guess, have a slightly woozy kind of slow dive sound to them. Still a lot of reverb involved in the sound. What does it take to make a record these days? Um, I think it's a lot easier in, in the sense that you don't necessarily have to spend a lot of money and go to a big fancy studio. You know, I mean, if you've got a laptop and a couple of microphones and a decent haircut, you can form a band and make a, make a record pretty easily, which is great. I think the difficult thing these days is perhaps getting those records heard. You know, there isn't that kind of level of record company support that you would have got when we first started. So, yeah, making the records is easier, I think, but making a living at it is, is definitely tougher. What keeps you touring? I think for us, it's we, we, we enjoy doing it, you know, it's um, we don't do it that often. I mean, the last time we toured was 2018, I think. So, you know, we've had a few years off. Obviously, COVID was kind of a big part of that as well. We, you know, I think we all lost a bit of time there. But yeah, yeah I mean, for us, we're, you know, we're looking forward to getting back out and playing the old songs, playing, you know, playing these new ones as well and uh, just sort of reconnecting with the audience again. and. We'll be out in the US, I think, in, in a couple of weeks. So uh, it's exciting for us. And just for the record, do you actually spend a lot of time gazing at your shoes? <laughs> um, well, I probably do because I'm, I'm, you know, one of the guitarists. So I, I definitely still spend a lot of time seeing what's happening with my pedals, you know, but possibly not the case for the rest of the band. Neil Halstead of uh, Slow Dive. The Shoegaze Band is out now with their fifth record, Everything is Alive. Mr. Halstead, thank you so much for being with us. That, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. With the Koli people in Mumbai, the end of the powerful monsoon rains also marks the return of the sea for fishing. This year they celebrated this new beginning at the end of August, Numata Kolachlam sends us his postcard from Mumbai. 
Surrounded by the gleaming high-rises of India's financial capital, the small shops and stalls in this Kohli fishing village bustle with activity. At an open-air cafe, community leader Mohit Ramley is busy preparing for the evening celebrations. The Western concept is Thanksgiving Day, but for us it is Narli Purnima. Narli Purnima is an annual holiday that takes place in the Hindu month of Shravan after two long months of monsoon rains when fishermen cannot go out to sea. It marks the beginning of the new fishing season and brings out the whole community to celebrate. As dueling brass bands lead dancing processions through the narrow streets, thousands of people spill onto the sprawling, sandy beach. Colorful fishing boats decked with flower garlands are arranged across the sand. Men wear a traditional red cap with blue stripes. Women have strung light-up beads through their hair and the hems of their saris, so their golden jewelry glows in the fading light. Oh, and there are coconuts everywhere. As he arranges coconuts on the sand, Narendra Karde walks me through the religious ritual. He says he'll offer flowers to the coconuts and top them with red powder and light incense. He passes around a tray of karanji, a coconut dessert shaped like the half moon, as the waves crash on the shore. As the sun begins to set, he joins his wife and toddler to toss the coconuts into the Arabian Sea, an offering to the sea god, Varuna. They ask for calm waters and plenty of fish. In the morning, fishing boats will launch into the sea as they've done for centuries. But now, climate change presents new challenges. Here's Mohit again. And then we march into the seas, but the future is unknown to the fishermen because of this climate change. What cyclone they will face, what storms they will face. One research group has found that the frequency and intensity of extreme cyclone events around Mumbai has doubled since 2010. Holy fishermen must navigate increasingly polluted waters, competition from industrial fishing boats, and extreme weather. I ask Mohit if the Kohli people are more fearful of the sea these days. He answers with a Kohli folk song. Any cyclone, any storm may come. No matter how, it, how much it rains, but Kohlis don't fear of anything. On the beach, I meet many young Kohli people who have decided not to work as fishermen. Like Minal Sandyacha, who teaches science at a local college. She says many young people like her are now top-class doctors, engineers, and lawyers. Still, she says it's important to honor their heritage. We are top-class doctors, top-class everything, but still, we should be rooted. We have to be rooted, Minal says, because if we forget the sea, the sea will forget us. For NPR News, I'm Namrata Kalachalam in Mumbai. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR.
From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Two Boston City councilors are dealing with scandals as they campaign to hold on to their seats. Tomorrow morning here on WBUR, we'll preview Tuesday's preliminary election in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the International Institute of New England, welcoming and supporting refugees and immigrants in the community for more than a century. IINE.org and Arts Thursdays at Harvard's Art Lab with the film Bravo Burkina, a magical migration love story by Wale Oyeji Day, September 14th at 7, Art Lab at Harvard. After decades of trying to distance itself from sports betting, the National Football League is embracing it like never before. This was a league that was staunchly against gambling, and then literally when money got thrown in their face, they completely uh, hit a 180 and was like, give us all the money. A look into sports gambling and the NFL on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.